1997 in Tucson, Arizona. And Rafael Suarez, pictured above here, was convicted of a vicious felony assault for which another man had already pleaded guilty to. Even though there were three witnesses that spoke of his innocence, and one of those witnesses actually heard the victim say, I'm going to blame Suarez, even though he wasn't the guy who did it. They were all called to, none of those witnesses were called to testify by uh, Suarez's relatively incompetent attorney, which resulted in Suarez being convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. But after these facts came to light, in 2000, Suarez was released. But by then, he lost his house, he lost his job, his wife divorced him, and he lost parental rights to his three children. Suarez ended up suing his former lawyer, who, then by, who by then had been disbarred. He got a $1 million settlement, but the lawyer had no assets and had filed for bankruptcy. So Suarez didn't receive a single penny. Unfortunately, cases like Raphael's aren't uncommon. In fact, looking at the stats on corporal punishment, 4% of people, that's 1 in 25. So in a room here, if we were all guilty, three of us would not be, would be innocent were sentenced to death in the United States and are later found to be innocent. Murder cases are smaller uh, and easier to track than criminal cases, but in 2016, there were 2.3 million people in the prison system. So even if there was just 1% of those people who are wrongfully convicted, that's more than 20,000 people the size of a small city that is innocent. It's not, this injustice isn't found only in the criminal justice system. We don't have to go very far to see injustice in our world around us. Your newsfeed is likely full of those examples of injustice popping up. And we can find ourselves overwhelmed. Some of us here have the resources to insulate ourselves from the effects of injustice with a choice of our friends, the neighborhoods we live in, or our schools that we go to. But many people don't. The story of Christian scripture is that a perfectly just and good God doesn't just move out of the neighborhood when things go awry. Rather, he enters into the brokenness of our unjust world and does something about it. On Palm Sunday, we remember the great but premature celebration of Israel welcoming their King Jesus, only to realize, as Anne reminded us just a week later, that the King of Justice dealt justice out far differently than his people expected. In fact, the path that he took was one of tremendous injustice. We're nearing the final weeks of our This Future Life sermon series where we've been looking at how the future life embodied and imparted by Jesus enables us to experience that future life now in the present. And in today's message, we're going to look at how God experiences injustice himself, yet becomes a gift of righteousness and justice to all in spite of it. So we're going to walk through this text in three movements. Injustice, a just response, and just respond. Injustice, just response, and just respond. As we begin Holy Week, we recall the story of Jesus' journey to the cross. And, it's, and if you've known Christ for many years, we can easily skim through the details of this because of our familiarity with the story. But in this chapter, we can slow things down a bit and we see the tremendous injustice that Jesus experiences for himself. First, there's a betrayal in verse 2. 
Judas, his disciple, who is in charge of, he's a trustee managing the funds of the group, he takes 30 silver coins more to betray Jesus. Then there's the use of excessive force for the arrest of simply a teacher. A detachment of soldiers is sent with torches and lanterns and weapons. In verse 3, if you picture it today, maybe they're wearing night scopes and full body armor and SWAT team to show up to, to, to arrest this teacher. They were perhaps suited up, expecting a nighttime chase of a hardened criminal through the mountainside, but it was simply Jesus, a teacher, with no prior history of violence. Then there's this injustice of cronyism. Even though Caiaphas is officially the standing priest of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, they bring Jesus to Annas first, in verse 13, before bringing him to Caiaphas. You see, the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the chief priests, were the ones, were the highest courts that Jews, uh, that governed over the Jews. But Annas was actually the high priest five years prior, but he had been deposed. But he continued to exert influence through his five sons who continued to be high priest after him and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, as well. He functioned as a de facto high priest through these, his, his, his family, Members of the Sanhedrin were typically wealthy, influential families that had decision-making power over much of Jewish life. They would adjudicate at the highest level. They'd appoint judges at lower courts. They had the decision-making power to tax the Jews. So even though Annas didn't have an official title, he had the decision-making power over the Jews through his sons and son-in-law who held the title after him. That's why they brought Jesus to Annas first. Then there's this predetermined outcome prior to the trial ever beginning in verse 14. Caiaphas says, it would be good if one man died for the people. It doesn't matter what the charge is, but someone's got to die. There's physical abuse. When Jesus is arrested, an officer slaps him in the face in verse 22 for not answering the question that the way he wanted. There's this baseless charge when they finally bring Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor who has the power to actually execute somebody. There's no charge. He recognizes it. Just this desire to execute Jesus, and that's all they bring him to Pilate with. And finally, this cowardly judgment of Pilate. Pilate knows that he is innocent, but he turns to the crowd and says, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? He knows the right thing to do, yet he does not walk in courage and bends to the public. Injustice after injustice after injustice. And ultimately, as we remember on Good Friday in just a few days, Jesus is condemned to die and is crucified. And this cruel form of death was looked upon in horror by Jews because it was considered the same as hanging someone. And you only hang someone if they are cursed by God. Betrayal, excessive use of force, cronyism amongst the elite, legal systems that are fixed, physical abuse, and justice systems that favor those with means and power. Perhaps the injustices we are troubled with in our day and age aren't actually that unfamiliar to Jesus. We hear news of wealthy parents who pay off their athletic, athletic directors to get their children into prestigious colleges that their children would not otherwise enter into on their own merit. Injustice. Closer to home, in the southwest waterfront of D.C., we have all these beautiful buildings coming up with commitments to put in affordable housing, but the developers rescinded on that, but no one has held them accountable. 
Did you know that the biggest cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States, at over 60% of personal bankruptcies, is caused by inability to pay for medical treatment? And out of those people who have filed bankruptcy for medical treatment reasons, more than four out of five of them actually have medical insurance. This bucks the myth that medical bills only affect the uninsured. That certainly doesn't sound very just in the, one of the, wealth, in the wealthiest nation with the most advanced medical system in the world. We're witnessing now a political system that doesn't just reward candidates who have the best experience and policies and expertise, but rewards those who can raise the most money and have the best connections. That doesn't seem quite right and for the people. You see, since the fall of Adam and Eve, human hearts are bent against true justice as we assert our own power and autonomy, often at the expense of a fellow human being and against our created order. Fueled by greed, insecurity, and fear, we find ourselves part of a system that seems tilted against the marginalized and the poor. The question isn't whether injustice exists in our world. Of course it does. The question is, is what are we going to do about it? We can rally and raise awareness. We can mobilize and organize a response, and we can do direct service to help those who are suffering. And all these are necessary and vital responses. But this text brings us comfort as we see the God of the universe. He knows deeply what injustice is himself. And perhaps it's most helpful to see how God himself would respond when he is on the receiving end of injustice. Amidst this injustice, we, didn't find that, we don't find that, that he fights the way we expect. In the midst of mistreatment and injustice, he doesn't hold press conferences and start a GoFundMe page. He doesn't ask his disciples to pull out their phones and record this on YouTube and post it to YouTube. He doesn't claim human rights violations or even God rights violations, though he has the full um, uh, right to do so as the Son of God. And even as he's attacked and abused, he responds in a surprisingly countercultural way, especially when held up to our convictions of self-reliance and self-defense, entrenched deeply in our culture since the De uh, Declaration of Independence. You know, while the American Revolution sought freedom from the in injustice of unfair taxation without representation from Great Britain, Jesus, too, here begins a revolution. It's a revolution that begins with his arrest and crucifixion. It's a revolution of setting things right, even as wrong is being done against him. He has in mind the redemption of all humanity, and so he walks through these injustices to bring healing to all creation. As he is being arrested without just cause, he isn't fighting the arrest and pulling together an all-star legal defense team to protect himself in the name of justice being served. Instead, we find this God of justice serving when he expresses concern for the protection and care for those with him. In verse 8 and 9, he says, if you're looking for me, he says this to the arresting party, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. In these verses, he asks that his disciples be protected, that they wouldn't be harmed. While injustice is being done against him, he seeks to ensure that injustice isn't extended to those around him. 
But we find that his concern is not only for those that are his friends or a concern that only those who belong to his tribe. You see, when Peter attempts to intervene in the situation by lopping off the ear of Malthus, one of the, the servants belonging to the arresting party, Jesus doesn't revel in his opponent's suffering. He doesn't take a picture and tweet it to tell people what violence and injustice is being done against him. Instead, he steps out. He puts his hand on his ear and he heals him. Dr. Luke records this scene in his version account of this scene. In verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And before he even answers, one of them, we know now it's Peter, the servant of the high, uh, struck the high, servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus lived out what he taught when it comes to loving his neighbors, even when his neighbors seemed to be his enemies. In this, his sermon on the, on the mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he says, you have heard it said, love your, enemies and, uh, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, when com a combative confrontation appears to be the most effective solution, Jesus pursues peace and relationship. It's this value of reconciliation and pursuing all options for peace that undergirds this Mennonite and Anabaptist roots of our Washington Community Fellowship. If you're not familiar with Anabaptist convictions, it's this embrace of Jesus as the highest authority, even over nation and state and law, this embrace of Jesus even higher than your individual freedom and rights that informs this rejection of violence as the best solution and first solution to conflict. The movie Hacksaw Ridge tells a true story of Desmond Doss from Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, he's not a Mennonite, but he's a Seventh-day Adventist who shares the same pacifist convictions as he enlists in World War II. In basic training, he is estranged from his unit when they find out that he refuses to pick up a gun. His captain wants to get rid of him. And his unit thinks that he's a threat to their safety because he won't have a gun. Yet, as a conscientious objector, the military makes allowances for him, it doesn't anymore, uh, to stay on as a combat medic in the unit. And as the story unfolds, we find that his most effective weapon isn't one that shoots bullets or lobs grenades, but his most effective weapon is his courageous commitment to bring just one more. If you watch the movie, that's his prayer to God, say, Lord, just one more, just one more. Help me to bring just one more injured soldier off the field. And he dragged in one night 75 men off the battle-scarred battlefield and lowered them down the ridge by himself. And for his efforts, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, the only conscientious objector ever in the history of the military to receive the Medal of Honor. And for Jesus, a just response wasn't just to fight for an eye for an eye, but to turn the other cheek. And this challenges our typically American, trigger-happy culture that glorifies confrontation and violence as a solution to our problems. You know, our weapons of choice may not be guns and bullets, but they can be weapons of words directed towards the offender that we think has offended us. We can sh fire those words directly with our voices. We can fire those words with our tweets and on social media. Or we can fire them indirectly through gossip. And what's gossip? It's talking about the other person with some other people before you talk to that person. 
And maybe we're not even using words as our weapons, but we use the weapons of silence in broken relationship. We cut off relationships quickly as soon as someone doesn't agree with us or they don't share our viewpoints. And sure, we might be civil about it, but we alienate and we demonize those who see things differently as our enemies rather than pursuing understanding and right relationship. Now, we know that Jesus is, go, is to go to the cross in a few days to solve the greatest injustice in the universe in dealing with sin. He does the most just action in history by taking on the punishment for the sin of all humanity upon himself. And he begins a revolution to return relationships amongst humanity and in all creation as God had intended. In a culture that cringes at the word righteousness because we think it means self-righteous, Jesus reveals that righteousness is actually about relationships being restored rightly. Righteousness is about relationships being restored rightly. The injustice against Jesus turns out to be the means by which justice is met out for all creation. And in highlighting Caiaphas' declaration, first John mentions it several chapters earlier in 11 verse 50, and again here in verse 14, he says, it's better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And John, by repeating it here, is saying, you bet you that's the truth. Not just the nation of Israel, but the whole world too. Jesus endures injustice and becomes the gift of righteousness and justice for all. So, we've seen how God responds himself to injustice. And he becomes a gift of justice and righteousness for all. What's our response if we are followers of Jesus? How does Jesus inform our response to injustice? I think first, there's acts of justice that we can do. I think we're living in a great time in the world because there are many great causes to be a part of. In our Western and particularly American ethos, we take pride in our activism. We're solutions-focused. You've got a problem, you join a band together, and let's get her done. So we find like-minded people to strive towards a more just world in the area of race relations, in the area of income equality, in the area in the criminal justice system, in a fair access to education and health care, and in our personal relationships and in human sexuality. All of these um, acts of justice are, are looking at the fundamental dignity of a human being. And that's wonderful. But here's the thing. You don't actually need Jesus to do these acts of justice. If you do it apart from Jesus, you, you'll, you'll never experience this unquenchable joy and hope like Jesus did in this passage, apart from knowing the gift of righteousness and justice in him. Doing acts of justice apart from knowing this gift found in Christ alone will result in either pride and self-righteousness. I'm doing this. Why aren't you? Why aren't you on board? What's your problem? Or you find yourselves burnt out, overwhelmed, frozen, unable to do anything at all. We can do acts of justice, but we can only do them as a gift to share when we've come to know the gift of Christ himself. And that leads us to the second, but not the, the second in importance. It's actually the most essential. It's that we receive the gift of righteousness and justice from Jesus. We acknowledge 
that we're not in right relationship with the living God, which affects our ability to live in right relationship with those around us. And we don't just do this one time. At least I don't. I'm constantly being pointed out by the Holy Spirit how I am not in the right relationship with the living God, and that changes how I live in relationship with others. And if that's you, you can just simply say something like this. You say, Jesus, I recognize I am far more evil, I'm far more selfish, I'm far more self-reliant and self-righteous than I often think I am. But with you, I realize that I'm far more loved than I ever deserved to be loved. So help me to embrace this gift you offer to me and be changed. It's only from that place that we can share this gift of righteousness and justice as God has designed for us. Lastly, let me, before we move back into activism, doing acts of justice, I want to talk about one more response that we in the West often overlook. It's the practice of lament. I first met Mark Charles, uh, he's up on the screen here, at the Little Lights Race Literacy Class. He's an American Indian brother who loves Jesus. He lives here in the city, but he's passionate about sharing the story of systemic racism in our nation that has resulted in the literal genocide of American Indians, or First Nations people. A young white man had listened to Mark Charles speak recently, doing his talk on this topic, and he felt burdened by what he heard. So Mark Charles noted his visible discomfort during the Q&A time when this man stood up to ask a question. After a series of rambling thoughts, Mark describes that he knew what was coming. This young man wanted to ask Mark Charles in public for forgiveness of this injustice that was looming over him. And this young man needed to do something with what he was feeling. He needed to take action. But Mark Charles, he stopped him in the middle of his statement, and he said the following, I know what you're about to do, but before you go further and ask for my forgiveness, let me suggest this. You have a highly individualistic worldview, and you're feeling the weight of hearing 500 years of dehumanizing history of your nation and of your church that is pressing down on your shoulders for the first time. And the only thing that you are thinking about right now is how am I going to sleep tonight? You want to ask for my forgiveness. And I, as a public Christian man, have to forgive you so you can now drive home to the suburbs and feel good about yourself knowing that you have heard about this injustice and you've done something about it and you've repented. You've been forgiven of it. You can sleep tonight. But I have to go back to my reservation and deal with the dregs of this injustice and nothing will have changed. I'm not mad at you and I don't want to ask you to ask for my forgiveness. You need to just sit there for a while in it. He was very gracious, but he was very honest. And in doing this, what Mark was doing was giving this young man a tool for lament. And something that we're not very good at in our culture. Because we don't like to confront our brokenness and how it impacts us and how it especially impacts those around us. That's why the Christian church, and in a few moments, we're going to be going to confession and, and, and assurance. And that's a moment for us to sit and lament the, the, the power and the effect of sin in our lives and in our world. That's why the Christian church throughout history has not only held on to Easter Sunday, as we'll be celebrating next Sunday, but also Good Friday. At WCF, 
We want to celebrate and share the story of the resurrection hope found in Christ with our neighbors. And that's why, you know, we've got these postcards printed for the first time. You see posters as you're walking in. We want to share this amazing story of hope that is found in a resurrected Jesus. We want to invite them to breakfast and, and, and tell the story faithfully next Sunday. So I invite you to do that as you go. We like the high points and the victory of Easter Sunday, but we don't always like the ugly, bloody ugliness of Good Friday. And that's why we take time this Good Friday to do a today service. The season of Lent leading up to Good Friday is an opportunity to lament and sit in this burden of our brokenness and sin that drove God to love us to death, literally, on the cross. So take time to lament the injustices of this world. We can do that daily when we feel the burden of injustice that we see. But recognize that it is our sin that resulted in the injustice of Jesus being nailed to the cross first. But the great thing is that we don't have to stay there in that lament. We know the gift of righteousness and justice found in the crucified Jesus. And because of that, we have the power to share this gift of right relationship wherever we go. It's in Jesus' name and for Jesus' name that we do these things. Amen.